Shut up and sit down. Listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. Here's your host, John Lund. Hello, everyone. You're listening to The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. I'm your host, John Lund, the multimedia sports enthusiast, bringing you this sports show. What's it like to be the creator of one of the most accurate player projections in baseball? We'll get into that and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve on episode 63 of The Bridge. (laughs) Greetings and salutations, everyone. Welcome back to another installment of The Bridge, coming to you live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, 7 to 8 p.m. Eastern Time, to bring you the best and brightest of the sports world. That's right, The Bridge is live on Sports Radio America every Wednesday night, though the show is technically pre-recorded. If you do miss the live show, the podcast version of The Bridge is available 48 hours after the initial broadcast, which means you can find the newest episode on iTunes or on my website at londonbridge.com on Friday nights. I'll save all the ways you can listen to The Bridge and where you can find the show until the end of this latest installment. If anything, you can call in or text in to the show 24-7 at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Contact the show with your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of The Bridge. All right, let's get into the fun stuff. Give me the siren. The circus carousel that is the New York Knicks continues to spin, this time with its star player back in the limelight and, as par tradition, not in a good light. Carmelo Anthony has been the subject of trade rumors for most of the season and capped all of that off now as the main subject of the sports tabloids. Melo has never won a ring in the NBA, as we know, though does own one from his collegiate playing days. Unfortunately, he's about to lose his other one. It's time for the number one news anchor parody segment in sports radio. Here's this week's edition of Sports News Red Like Real News. Carmelo Anthony has never been able to live up to the high expectations set by fans of the Knicks. That is, to bring a championship back to New York. The sky was the limit when Melo entered the NBA fresh off of winning a national championship in his only year at Syracuse. After several seasons with the Denver Nuggets, Melo came home to New York and was welcomed with open arms. He was given the keys to the kingdom, and even when opportunity came to find another team, pledged his loyalty to New York and even instituted a no-trade clause to ensure he was in for the long haul. If only his wife had a no-trade clause for their marriage. He's a three-time Olympian, he's won the scoring title, and has been an all-star ten times. But with Melo at the forefront of the franchise, the Knicks have disappointed, having not made the playoffs since 2013. With James Dolan as owner and Phil Jackson as visitor, the Knicks have spent this past year in shambles, with Jackson closing the book on this season with his farewell press conference by saying that Melo should probably go play somewhere else. Just days after those statements, we found out that the shooter-shoot mentality that Melo implements on the court is also a quality he implements in the bedroom. It was reported by TMZ that Lala, Mello's wife of seven years, has separated from her husband and the couple was living separately. Reports then surfaced that Mello had impregnated a dancer of a gentleman's club in New York, and that she was six and a half months along with baby Mello. Apparently, Mello has spent much of his career living the bachelor life, despite his marriage. 
A source told the New York Post, quote, Mello's tagline was, she's married, I'm not. That's how he would justify it, end quote. Reports have recently surfaced that Mello's one-night love affair is not a stripper from New York, but a woman from Chicago with a master's degree. Either way, Lala has had enough of Mello's escapades and should have no problem finding her footing in the city of stars. As for Mello, may the recent rumors and tabloids result in more cryptic social media messages. And one thing is for certain, when Phil Jackson grumbled for his team to learn the triangle, the triangle that Mello now finds himself the center of, couldn't have been quite what Phil had in mind. Hashtag stay M-E the number seven O. I'm John Lund for Sports News, read like real news. Let's take a quick break to watch some MTV. When we come back, we'll talk to a baseball analyst about creating one of the most popular projection systems used in the sport. We'll be right back on the bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports. As you heard earlier in the show, you can call in or text into the bridge at 929-BRIDGE-7. That's 929-274-3437. Leave a voicemail or text your questions, comments, stories, or hot takes, and you'll be featured in the next installment of the bridge. Now, we do like to pose a question each show to help give you the urge to call in or text into the bridge. This week, we want to know who will win the World Series and why. The first round of the NBA playoffs is getting pretty good, but there's no reason in ranting and raving about that until some teams at least advance, and we've actually got someone lined up next week to talk some NBA with us about that. For now, baseball, and in keeping with this stats theme that we started when we spoke with Ken Pomeroy of KenPom.com last week, we had the pleasure of chatting with Dan Zimborski who is a writer and baseball analyst for ESPN, among other outlets. Dan is the creator of Zimborski Projection System, or ZIPS, which is a system of player projections used in baseball. So when you're looking up baseball stats or projections, you'll often see this listed, and it was great to talk to Dan about creating that and what goes into his projections, as well as some of the other anecdotes around baseball as well, and who might be projected to win the World Series this year. You can follow Dan on Twitter. He's at DZimborski. That's D-S-Z-Y-M-B-O-R-S-K-I. And without further ado, let's get into that interview. We're here with Dan Zimborski. He is an ESPN baseball analyst and the creator of the Zips Projection System. He's also a self-proclaimed nerd of the people. Dan, thanks for joining the show. How are you? Hey, John, I'm doing well. How are you today? I'm doing great and lots to get into. I'm sure I might end up feeling maybe a little bit dumber at times based on what you might be able to tell me, but I think we're going to have fun. I wanted to start by winding the clocks back a little bit to get started. When did you start getting interested in baseball stats and sabermetrics and that side of the game? Well, I was always interested, obviously, in baseball and numbers. Uh, I even though, I mean, I was on Little League travel team and everything, I, I figured out pretty early that I wasn't going to be a Major League Baseball player or a Minor League Baseball player. Uh, so I, I got more interested in the analysis of it. Uh, my grandfather bought me the uh, Bill James Baseball Abstracts and the Elias Baseball Analysts. And so I cranked numbers as a little kid. Uh, so it, it was always a passion. Then when I got onto Usenet in the mid-'90s, I found a lot of other like-minded people, uh, you know, a lot of the original baseball prospectus crew, Sean Foreman, Boris McCracken, uh, that, that gang, we all kind of hung out together and using that. And I guess one thing led to another, as the cliche says. The internet, of course, wasn't what it is today back in, say, 2000 when you graduated college. Was that sort of an underground society, if you will, of sabermetricians crunching numbers late into the evening? Or what was that lifestyle like when you were first getting started with those guys? Uh, there was always uh, some undercurrent of it. Uh, 
I'm trying to think the best way to describe this, but it, it was a small community, but there was always some undercurrent in baseball. Baseball wasn't completely ignorant of what was going on, but we were definitely an outsider crew at the time. Uh, it's, it's weird looking back 20 years later when we're so ingrained in front offices and media and, and it's a, just a larger community than it ever was before. At, at the time, you pretty much knew everybody who worked in Sabermetrics. Uh, now there are people I don't, I don't know anymore, uh, simply because there are more people uh, that are into it and it's a mainstream thing now. Uh, but it, it, it was an outsider community, and it has you know, the strengths and the weaknesses of an outsider community. In 2001, you joined up with Baseball Primer, as it was known then, now Baseball Think Factory, which is a sabermetrically oriented baseball website. Could you just briefly explain what that site was and what your role was within it? Well, that was an early, I guess, not early internet, but that was kind of in the early part of the, the mainstreaming of sabermetrics. Uh, it was a site for articles. Uh, I contributed, Boris McCracken contributed, uh, started by Sean Foreman of Baseball Reference and Jim Furtado. Uh, it, was, it was a more active site in those days. Other sites kind of grew to supplant a lot of what that site did. Um, sites like Fangraphs, Hardball Times, et cetera, that, that, that are a little more aggressive at developing some of the sabermetrics. Uh, it, it, it was fun to contribute to that site, and it, got, it was the first place that I got a lot of my work noticed by people. So even if right now it's mostly just the discussion area for headlines and stuff, I'll always have fond memories of Baseball Primer, Baseball Think Factory, simply because it was you know a big part of my life. You're also a member of the Society of American Baseball Research, or SABR. Is that similar to where it's just a lot of those original people and new Sabermetrics guys sort of under one roof or one umbrella, if you will, with that? Well, you'd actually be surprised. There's not actually a lot of stat stuff in Saber. Uh, it was kind of a misnomer that Bill James has actually regretted naming, uh, simply because most of the work of people in Saber has nothing to do with stats. It's it's a historical society, first and foremost, before other issues. Uh, the, the people who do a lot of work with stats and sabermetrics and, you know, all the, all the various numbers things, it's, it's a smaller percentage of that community. Uh, so there's a bit of a misnomer there. Uh, I think someone that, that enjoys baseball history and some of the people involved will probably get even more out of saber than, uh, say, a hardcore sabermetrics person that that doesn't may not have that same broadness of interest uh, i mean some do but there's obviously some overlap but some may not uh, one of the things that saber's done is they've actually advanced other things that do uh look more at stats like saber seminar and stuff simply because uh the original saber crew isn't really a stat crew so getting into what you are the creator of what people listening might know you for the Zimborski projection system or zips. And let yeah, me that, just not, not the most creative name. Well, we're, we're going to get into that as well, but I, I first wanted to take the easy way out to start Dan and just have you sort of explain what zips is the best way that you can. Well, and on a very basic level, I could probably ramble on for hours, but it's a computer projection system that essentially estimates where a player is, uh, what their path says, what baseball's history says about them, and where they're going in the future. Uh, the idea is to project players and come up with a reasonable guesstimate. It's a, it's a very large series of interlocking algorithms, so it's, 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 it's fairly complex, but the, the goals aren't that complex. Uh, essentially, I mean, the future is very, very foggy, and we can't peer through it with any kind of accuracy, like high accuracy, like like calibrating a rocket or something. It, it's a lot of, you're dealing with humans, a lot of uncertainty, and we're just trying to peer through that fog just a little bit. Uh, and projection systems do a good job with that because one of the nice things about them is they also give you an objective look at the data. Uh, even if they're wrong, they tend to be wrong for the right reasons, if that makes sense. They're not wrong because they love the Cubs or they like a guy or they saw someone 20 times last year. Uh, so I, I think projection systems and the like uh, do add a lot to uh, what we know about baseball simply because uh, things that are predictive have more relevance to understanding baseball than things that aren't predictive. So I'm happy with it, and it's probably the thing I'm most known for. Uh, 
I'd also like people to know my writing, but this is an easy thing to describe what I do. Could you give an example of a player that maybe would be the brainchild, if you will, or a player you can look at and say, hey, we sort of saw this coming years ago based on these projections. Look what he's doing now. I'm not sure about one particular thing, because one of the things is when you're making, when you're doing this kind of work, if you look too heavily at certain cases, uh, you stop seeing the forest for the trees. Uh, but one early projection I'm, I'm pretty happy with was Troy Percival uh, when uh, he, he went to the Tigers uh, as a free agent from the Angels. Uh, and he had, a, he had an ERA of like 2.9 something his last year in Anaheim. And Zips absolutely hated him, had him easily putting up the worst ERA of his career uh, in Detroit. Uh, something like, I think it was like a 4.70 projection after never being above anywhere near that through most of his career, except for I think one season. Uh, and when he went to Detroit and his ERA was close to six for the year, I, I kind of, I hate to say feeling good from someone's misfortune, but I was happy that Zip saw it coming. And I am happy when that happens. Like, because Zip saw Josh Hamilton's decline very well. Uh, it loved Mookie Betts as a prospect. So there's, you know, there's little smaller victories, but I try not to focus on them too highly because then you're, again, you're not seeing the forest for the trees in that case. First time Troy Percival has ever been mentioned on my show. So in a way, that's a small victory for both of us as well to have his name dropped on here. It was just the first player that just jumped in my mind. I don't know why. <laughs> Unfortunately, not still in the league for those that may be looking for Troy, but you should Google him and at least see what he was able to do through his career and compare it to what Zips had him as well. What made you decide yeah. not to make the acronym a sound similar to, say, a popular lemon iced tea in Sips? Since your name is Zimborski, people might think that starts with a Z, but it actually starts with an S. Why the Z well, and the lowercase i as well? Well, you don't really pronounce the Z in my, I mean, you don't pronounce the S in my last name. Uh, so I don't want, I don't want people to start saying Simborski, like, oh, then my nickname Sim, not Zim, and that really confuses things. Uh, I kind of, I kind of thought that Sips sounded like just maybe some kind of drink. I, I joked that it sounded like a juice box for hipsters, maybe like some weird niche restaurant in Portland that only sells juice boxes. They call themselves <laughs> Sips. Uh, I made I made the I little because when I was a kid, one of the shows I liked was Chips, California Highway Patrol, and they used a little I. Uh, I also did a little S the first time, but I typoed it the first time I typed it. And Jay Jaffe had picked it up in his blog and had already put it around, so the S stayed capitalized. And when I was a kid, I probably liked Dukes of Hazard even better, but I, I couldn't really think of a Dukes of Hazard tie into that. Uh, maybe I would have named my projection system Uncle Jesse or something. Do people recognize you for Zips? Maybe if they see your last name and put two and two together, have you ever been stopped publicly and said, are, are you the man behind that? Or is that sort of something that the people that would know you for are usually just behind their computers and not necessarily out to meet you like that? Well, one of the things is I'm not really on video very often, so I'm not recognizable by sight. Sometimes people will see my name and know me, uh, and it's usually a mix of things. Uh, I've been working for ESPN since uh, late 2009. So obviously there's going to be some kind of additional name recognition that I wouldn't have had uh, nine years ago that I do now. Uh, I, I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying I'm like Hollywood actor where I'd really be stopped or something. Uh, but I've had people recognize my name and I haven't been punched, which is always a nice surprise. So it hasn't worked out too badly. You've mentioned in the past that you looked up to Peter Gammons, the longtime baseball columnist, and were floored in a way when you found out he knew what Zips was. Does it still surprise you sometimes if you stop and think, like, hey, I'm writing about baseball for ESPN. What a dream job this has been. Oh, yeah, it does. Uh, I wish that my, my dad and grandfather were still around because they, they would have gotten a kick out of the whole thing. Uh, and it is fun, and I... I never mentioned it to Peter because I don't want him to make him feel really old to have a man approaching middle age talk about enjoying his work when he was a kid. It's like, oh, God, how old are you? <laughs> but uh, I, I read a lot of Bill James, and I had a subscription to Sports Illustrated starting uh, during the 86 World Series. 
so Peter Gamas was still writing inside baseball for Sports Illustrated at that point. Uh, so that that's where I got my first exposure to him, and uh, I liked him. And he's he's always he's always been supportive of my work in the last several years. So I have no complaints there. I just I just wonder if with that conversation where I feel awkward and he feels old. Well, he is getting older, and he might just have put that behind him at this point. He's done so much to where if somebody says that, he should wear it as a badge of honor, really, because of all the great work he's been able to do in the sport. Zips is regarded as one of the most accurate predictors in the business of sabermetrics and projections. Why do you think that's been the case? Well, I think there's a lot of sweat equity involved. Uh, it isn't necessarily the work of, a, of genius. Uh, I don't want to trying to think of a way to sound it where I don't sound like a complete jerk. I mean, it's, it's less a work of inspiration and genius than simply just a lot of time put in studying things. Uh, because I, I, I put, I put a lot of time in here studying different things, predictive value, running studies, you know, factor analysis, principal component analysis, all kinds of things that, that go towards showing what is predictive in baseball and what isn't predictive in baseball. Uh, and one of the, advantages I have is I've already put in a lot of that work. Uh, I think Sean Foreman, who is smarter than me, if he really, really wanted to, he could sit down and make a projection system that, that works better than mine. But it would take him quite a while because it's a lot of work to get to that point. Uh, and I mean, I've advised a lot of teams and, and, and agencies over the years on things. So I, I, I'm happy with where Zips is. I, I do the best I can. Uh, and it never really stands still. You always have to improve because there's always new information to use. How much easier has that side of things become since you first got started, just with how much things have advanced in the game technology-wise? Have things become a little easier in that regard to get all of this together? Oh, absolutely. The state of data in baseball 20 years ago, uh, when you go back to the early Internet, was, was absolutely terrible. There was no baseball reference. Uh, there wasn't even baseball data bank uh, in baseball1.com's yearly databases. None of that was really available at the time. Uh, to look up stats, you had to have a, a paper copy of total baseball to find some of these things. And having a paper copy does not really lend itself well towards working on the internet because you have to get the, or on the computer, because you have to get the numbers onto the computer somehow, which is. Kind of a pain when it's a, a 2,000 page book with small text and thin paper like tissue paper. Um, and stuff like minor league data was the situation was absolutely horrible. I actually had uh, a subscription to AOL simply because stats on AOL actually had some minor league data. So I had a, an AOL subscription along with my normal internet um, just so I could access that. Uh, that was the state of data 20 years ago, and it's much different today, obviously. Now you can go on the Baseball Reference or Fangraphs or MLB StatCast, you know, you know, Baseball Savant, and there's just so much information that you can actually access now. It, it makes it much easier. And things I can't get, uh, being in mainstream media and people knowing who you are, it, it tends to make it tends to be a lubricant to, to, for people to help you out and get you other data that you need. Uh, so, yeah, it's, it's so much easier today to get the information you need. It's been an interesting evolution of baseball sabermetrics because of how much it's grown in popularity in recent years, especially with the Moneyball movie, of course, coming out a couple of years ago. Are you happy with the way that baseball sabermetrics world has changed or is there also a part of you that somewhat misses those days when it was a more select group and you really had a grind for the different things there's always a, a bit of you know romantic nostalgia when you think you know the whole the old war stories i guess war stories for nerds just taking the days when when uh we were mean to web tv users and aol users and people in media we called them mediates which you've and now all, become. All the fun. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm, a, I'm in the Baseball Writers Association. I, I, I work for mainstream media, obviously. Uh, we've had to, you know, grow up also. It's not just about uh, people at the time understanding sabermetrics. It's also about us, the, the people who were around at the time, also becoming mellower and more rounded and respectful of others. Because, you know, outsider communities don't tend to be super respecting of the, of the insiders, uh, so to speak. 
but there's no denying that it's better now. Uh, I mean, I'm paid to do my dream job, essentially. I would, I would have to, you know, someone would have to punch me in the face if I complained about that at all. But, you know, it, there's always those moments where you think it was fun in those days arguing on Usenet about things. I remember arguing with this guy who insisted that Mookie Wilson should have been in the Hall of Fame and Dave Winfield should not have. Twitter does give me a little taste of that, though, because there's always people angry at me and, and I can kind of be a little mean back to them. I, I do like a good flame war. I was going to say, how do you manage this new social media world where you're fighting while discussing projections with folks who don't usually want to actually listen when you're discussing baseball projections? Well, luckily, I'm a gregarious loudmouth, so I'm, I'm pretty comfortable with that. Um, I, I, I'm, I'm very good if I need to turn my, my smug meter up. I know I shouldn't always, uh, but it's some of these guys are amateurs compared to Usenet. Usenet, there was an art of being cruel to each other in poetic ways when you could. Uh, I remember there was this, um, I don't know if you remember, but there was uh, an analyst named Doug Pappas, who was uh, head of Sabres Business of Baseball Committee, uh, Baseball Prospectus. Uh, he, he died of a sunstroke about 15 years ago now. Jeez. Uh, but on Usenet, there was this guy who was actually had a restraining order from going into Shea Stadium because he had been harassing Steve Phillips. Or was it Joe McElvain? I don't remember exactly who he was harassing, but he wasn't allowed at the park. And this guy posted on Usenet, and Doug Pappas would actually have an archive that people kept of humorous ways that he told this guy to kill himself. I know it sounds horrible. And it's not really that funny if you sit down and ponder it. Uh, but this guy was a real just piece of I, I, of a very bad word that I don't want to say. And so, stuff like that was kind of funny because it was well-crafted. And, and I don't think people on Twitter necessarily have that same respect of insult craft. It was an art is what you're saying. And now that you're writing yeah, more, it's, it's even a better art for you if you have to go down that path, right? Yeah, I mean, someone on Twitter says, you're fat, like, Geez, I I kind of figured that I didn't I didn't think the X and XL stood for extreme, but it's like uh, come on, it's like I won't block you, and I'll even tell people, you know, I'm I'm gonna block you, but I'm gonna give you 15 minutes to come up with a better insult than that, and if you do, then I won't block you, and I might even retweet it if it's good, but they never, there's no there's no as I said, there's no craft on Twitter with all that you've done both on the analytical side and even a little bit into the historical side of the game when you go to say Cooperstown Hall of Fame if you've ever happened to be there do you view things in a different way than maybe just the casual fan might while walking around there are there things that you look for when sort of taking a step back for the historical aspect of the game, either on the stats side or just the historical side of things? Is there something that you're really interested in when it comes to baseball? Well, when I'm at Cooperstown, uh, and I have been there, it's a, it's a great place to visit. Um, it's, it, I mean, the stats really take a back seat. I'm not really there as an analyst. Stats aren't really a big deal. I, I will talk about them a lot more when we're deciding who to induct. But when you're there, it's all about the history. And you can't, you can't you know, walk more than 10 feet without being immersed in baseball's past uh, some of its greatest players. I mean, maybe since I'm super into the history, I, I will be more familiar with the players involved, but I don't know if that kind of thing I really experience differently than say someone who isn't as into stats. Does that change at all when you're watching baseball now on television? Is there a different way that you might view the game as a fan just watching it from home on the statistical side or just the game in general side? Well, in that case, yeah, I do interact with baseball differently than I did as a teenager. Uh, but it's not just stats. It's multiple reasons. One, I'm... I'm analyzing baseball as a profession and you can't really, it's hard to just turn that off and lose yourself in the moment. So I do tend to be very analytical when I watch games. Uh, I mean, obviously I'll crack a joke about the analytics or, or something in the game, but I, I would lie if I said that my my relationship with baseball wasn't different, not worse, but different than it used to be. 
Uh, I still want my home team, the Orioles, to win, but I don't really live or die with how they do like I might have when I was uh, 18 instead of 38. Just don't tell Buck Showalter that then. I don't think he'd be happy to hear. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I try not to troll people in clubhouses. You'd have to work pretty hard to get a smile out of him if he wasn't in the mood. Yeah, there's no way. <laughs> You're also a member of the Baseball Writers Association of America. Have you gotten to that quota yet to be able to vote for the Hall of Fame? Are you working towards that? What is your status with that? Oh, I'm, I have I have a ways to go. Uh, they've only just started in the last 10 years admitting the Internet guys, the people who write for mainstream publications on the Internet for a living. Uh, we're still not quite at the point where the first people admitted to have their votes yet. Uh, like Keith Law was one of the first, and I don't think he votes until either next year or 2019. I'm not sure exactly. Uh, I'd actually have to ask him. Um, but really, the first people admitted are still waiting for their votes, like Jonah Carey. No, actually, he only got his like in 2013, I think. It's, it's, it's going to be a while for the internet generation to really be part of the voting. To use a poor projections segue, once you and other members of that media start getting involved with the voting process and having a hand in what the future really is for all of that, how do you think that is going to go? We, we're sort of seeing it now where the world is changing a little bit when it comes to the voting and that old school mentality of that gentleman wasn't very nice to me in the clubhouse, so I'm not going to put him into the Hall of Fame, is kind of going into the back burner, and the steroid-era guys don't have the same black mark as they once did, say, 10 or 15 years ago. Projecting that voting when you're able to get to that point, how do you think that's going to go when it comes to the Baseball Hall of Fame? Uh, well, I, I hope we do a good job. Uh, obviously, not all the people admitted to the Baseball Writers Association are the, are the stat type. Uh, but I'm hoping that we do a better job than has been uh, with with the inductions. If you look at the percentage of inductees by plate appearances, some years in the 20s and 30s and 40s, you have between 20 and nearly 25% of plate appearances being made by Hall of Fame batters. Well, it's been below 5% for players for 30 years now. Obviously, that would that would go up as more players are inducted, but we're actually far behind historical Hall of Fame standards. And I think, and it is important to me. People will just tell me, "Oh, don't get so caught up in the Hall of Fame voting," because I get I get very uh, animated, shall we say, during Hall of Fame season. But as someone who loves baseball, I want there to be a fitting honor to the greatest players to play baseball. And every time we snub an all-time great by not giving them that honor, we cheapen the honor for everybody, including the players who have already received it. Uh, because you don't just honor Mike Mussina by giving him the same honor you gave Bob Feller, but you also honor Bob Feller's memory by connecting him to today and say a Mike Mussina or even a Kurt Schilling uh, or, or any of the other pictures who are going to have trouble getting in in the next several years, like like Roy Halladay, who's really going to get screwed, let's just say. Uh, I, I think that, it's a, that it really is important to history to link our generations like this. And when we're not inducting people and keeping that for petty things, we're kind of making a break in baseball history, something that people will look back on disappointed at us in 50 years. To put a cap on Zips before getting in some topical things before you prepare for a well-deserved vacation, when someone decides that they really want to get into Zips and use it and have that be their projection for that day or whatever they're looking for, is there a perfect scenario of what it could be used for, whether that's specific players, teams in general, or even for minor league guys? Is there a, a good starting point, per se, if someone really wants to get involved in checking out those projections? I'm not sure about a, a good starting point, simply because I don't really think of it in that way. I'm not really sure. I, that's one of the things that if, if I had a larger budget, I'd have like a focus group do or something. Uh, but I'm not, I'm not really sure the best way to get people into projections. Uh, I, I try to use projections a lot. I don't just... I try not to write just dry pieces where I say, someone projected for 34 home runs. Why is projected for 37 home runs? I try to use it in interesting ways uh, to, to talk about it. Like, for instance, 
I just wrote a piece last night at the Reds game about uh, the Pirates and Starling Marte's uh, suspension. Uh, and it's cool to see the difference in playoff probability with him and without him, just to get kind of a, instead of just a number, just to see the difference. Uh, so hopefully my writing brings people into the projections. Uh, but on a general level to try to market it or something, I'm not really sure. You mentioned on Twitter that you're working on predicting park factors from dimensions and fences and temperatures and fall territory. Can you explain that a little bit better for people? That's something that they could look out for as well. Oh yeah. I, this was for a piece I did on ESPN last week. Uh, I, I, one of the problems whenever there's a new park is that you don't exactly know how the park's going to play because park effects are a much bigger deal in baseball than in any other sport. Uh, while there are, you know, differences in, you know, altitude and temperature, say at a football game, everyone plays at the same size field while baseball, except for the, once you get to the outfield, the foul territory, there's some pretty large variations, uh, fence, fence height, pretty large variations in how these parks play. And normally I treat a new park like a neutral park just because I don't know. Uh, but my editor asked me a few weeks ago, Dan, can you, can you predict uh, what SunTrust Park, how SunTrust Park is going to play? And I said, maybe. Uh, so I, <laughs> I was motivated by a piece on that subject. I went through a lot of data, did a lot of number crunching, and I, I did find that there, were, there was some measures that had decent predictive value. And it might do a better job of predicting SunTrust Park than, say, just assuming it's neutral for three years until you see what the park factors actually are. Uh, and a lot of it is are, are things you would expect, uh, you know, fence height, distance to the fences, amount of foul ter territory, uh, temperature, altitude of the park, uh, things like that, uh, which you would expect. But knowing what the factors are probably going to be, it doesn't really help you to assemble them into something until you actually do the work so i actually did the work that's why you're getting paid the big bucks is what it comes down to right yeah so I, sometimes i do things like that on my own sometimes i have to be motivated by something i'm easily distractible does zip say anything about pace of play and making baseball fun again <laughs> uh, I, I, I that's probably out of its purview i guess you could probably do some kind of fun factor projection say i guess Stolen bases, triple percentage, balls in play percentage, batting average on balls in play. Maybe if you had it to compare against, say, polls of player of people watching players for fun value. Uh, I'm not sure my bosses would 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 be keen on me doing research studies like that. But there's probably ways to do that because when when someone gives me a problem, the first thing I want to do is figure out how to solve it. Uh, and not all problems can be solved, but I like to at least muse on the subject. Is pace of play a problem that needs to be solved, or are you at a state that I think most baseball fans are, that the game is going to be a little long, but that's not necessarily the worst thing in the world? I kind of think that, that the pace of play could tend to be a little quicker. It's not so much the length of the game, it's the amount of time where nothing's happening, where there's just guys standing around, just dirt, 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 and sometimes sometimes things just take forever. Uh, I mean, you accept that there's going to be breaks between innings or when a picture is replaced, but at times it can be too long. Uh, the problem isn't the length. A, a great four-hour game will whoosh by, while a awkwardly played two-hour game will drag. But on a general level, I think there are places where baseball could trim the fat, so to speak. Uh, with, with real things. I, I don't think, I don't have a problem with the pitch clock or anything like that. I do like there being some kind of time pressure on the players involved. I think it makes a more interesting game possibly, and it should be tested as much as possible uh, because they're not going to shave enough time off with things like the automatic intentional walks. There's just not enough of them for that to make a difference. Uh, but I, I do think that that there are things that can be done to improve the pace of play. Nate Silver wrote a piece the other day, interestingly, coming up with an idea called goose eggs when it comes to saves. And it was a take on Goose Gossage not being happy with saves at all, 
just because on what he did throughout his career where you weren't able to come in the ninth inning with a three-run lead. You were coming into the seventh inning with two guys on base and the game tied in a much higher pressure situation. And what Nate Silver tried to do was reward those higher pressure situation innings and you would get rewarded for that even if it was three or two, whatever the number would may be. Are you familiar with that sort of idea that he came up with and how do you feel about that goose egg style of stat if he were to implement it instead of saves? I think it's that's what I, I am familiar with the stat that they developed. Uh, I think it's one of those things that's more interesting to a viewer. I don't know if it's really something that we would use in kind of an, an analytical standpoint, but it's certainly a better idea than saves are. Uh, I haven't really dug into them, seeing what kind of relationship they have with different things. Uh, but it, it, it would be an easy way to, it would be a better basic stat for the public than saves. Is. I really hate saves. I detest saves so much. Mariano Rivera won't be happy to hear that either. But see, he's, he's too awesome for saves. There should have been a stat that could act accurately, uh, adequately describe his awesomeness. Describing someone's awesomeness with saves is always going to be an inadequate way to do it. Looking around the game quickly, and it's silly to do too many projections just because we're so early into the season, but it's been interesting to see that many of last year's playoff teams have gotten off to poor starts, some very much poorer than others. Is there anything to put a finger on as to why that might be the case for some teams starting below 500 if you look throughout the different divisions in baseball to start? I'm not sure it's a super I – don't, I don't know. think there's a general thread tying these all together. It's simply because when you play 12, 13, 14, 15 games, the difference between a great baseball team and a terrible baseball team is fairly small compared to other sports. I mean, there have been some years where no team – uh, hit 60% of their wins or, or fewer than 40% or fewer than a 400 winning percentage. Uh, teams tend to be fairly close, so you're going to see some of this happen. Now, obviously, the games count. So even if a team is unchanged, they've also dug themselves, in some cases, some fairly serious holes. Uh, if you look at the Blue Jays right now at 2-11, and 11, even if you don't think that they're a worse team than you thought they were at the start of the season, 2-11 and 11 is in the books. They are probably four wins back from where they should be at this point. And those wins don't just get magically balanced out with one extra hot streak later. Those are four wins that are gone from their season totals, even if the team is just as good as we expected. Uh, so, so teams can dig themselves a hole. You can't win a division in April, but in some situations you can lose it. The Zips projections had the Cubs an 18% chance of winning the World Series once again to repeat from last year, which was the best probability in baseball at the time. Has that number changed at all or fluctuated, or are the Cubs still once again the team to beat this year? They're still projected as a team to beat. I don't have it in front of me. Uh, I had them down to only a 93% chance of making the playoffs. Uh, I know, horribly low. Uh, but I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it's, if it's come off a percentage or two. Uh, because they are seven and seven, uh, and even though the teams ahead of them aren't very good, there's a, there's always a lot of uncertainty. I talked about the fog earlier of predictive future, and we we we're pretty sure the Cubs are really good. But strange things happen sometimes. Uh, I would probably guess just back of the envelope, not even crunching a number, and they're probably going to be projected to about fifteen or sixteen percent when I next run the projections. Um, the in-season projections, but that, that, don't hold me to that. That's just a guess. Did Zips help project that they would end the 108-year curse last season? Yeah, but it's hard to be like super trumping of that because everybody liked the Cubs last year. <laughs> I can't say, well, Zips is so accurate, it projected the Cubs to win the World Series. He was like, oh, yeah, that, that's helpful. You're going to have to do that with a team that just completely comes out of the blue to win their first World Series ever, like the San Diego Padres or a team like that, just to say, yes, we didn't necessarily have this, but I did put this away in case this day came. Yeah, those instances are useful. Like, uh, Zips didn't project the Rockies to win two-thirds of their games, but Zips did have the Rockies, depending on assumptions, winning between 82 and 85 games. 
and that's more than most people and other projection systems thought from them. Uh, so if, if they do win, then I'll have a little measure of credit, I think, because, see, when, when an unexpected team wins the World Series, the people who are highest on them should get at least a little bit of credit, even if they didn't pick them to be as good as they turned out to be. But lastly, what people should also remember is what you do is incredibly difficult to project the future of baseball, because if it were easy, you would probably be going on vacation somewhere very, very luxurious coming up because you would be a multimillionaire for maybe getting to put some money down on Vegas as well, based on what the projection said. Oh, I, I do do well. Uh, one of the problems of using projections in Vegas is Vegas knows the projections and they know that the public looks at the projections. Right. So there are actually fewer opportunities every year, especially with some of the prop bets, to really take advantage of you know the whole arbitrage thing. That's why you might miss those days when you were doing these stats via candlelight, how people might view it back in the day with quills and scrolls crunching the numbers 20 years ago when things weren't necessarily yeah, I, as popular. I can't wait to tell kids someday about this, this, this ancient writing implement we this had called AOL. pen. This AOL. net that pen, we had. And we had this thing called paper made from these things called trees. <laughs> kids are going to look um, at you. What is he talking about? Tree. What is a tree? Uh, it's funny because I joke about that, but my handwriting is has become so much worse since I was in high school. Because in high school and you know, grade school, you're writing things all the time. I almost never write anything with a pen anymore. Maybe like a note for something. Uh, I'll write like two sentences and I'll, like my hand's tired. Like, man, I don't, I'm not, a, my hand's out of shape for writing now. I could type 110 words a minute, but writing, man, that's brutal. And when people are looking at your signature, you're making it even tougher for them just based on all the letters that they have to do with. See what you're doing? I don't have most of them. If you look at my signature, I don't have most of the letters in it. It looks like just like a big D and a big S and a bunch of scribbles and like a little loop-de-loop for my eye at the end. We could get to the point where you could just go the Shoeless Joel Jackson route and just write zips, and people will just know that's Dan Zimbarski. I'd write a big Z. I am the Z-Man. Uh, it was fun. I got to um, the Staten Island Yankees had a sabermetrics day last year, uh, and they had a bunch of us in for a panel. And we got to sign baseballs and uh, a baseball bat for the team to give to a lucky fan, which was fun. I didn't expect anyone to ask me to sign a baseball bat for them. See that? You're like Pete Rose at Vegas in the back room, people coming <laughs> up to you to get your autograph for what you've been doing. That's perfect. Yeah, soon I'll get the bull haircut and the gambling troubles. Uh, but I wonder, I wonder who got, now that I think of it, I wonder who got the bat. Because they got a bat with my name, Jay Jaffe, Jonah Carey, Carson Sestouli, uh, and a few others. It's a missed opportunity if they don't grow up to be the next projections or sabermetrics guy in baseball. Hopefully they'll be your colleague one day. Who knows? Yeah, that'd be fun. Um, it, would be, it would be fun to see the bat like 50 years from now. Well, Dan, thanks so much for coming on to the show, further explaining all the work that you do and some different things that we have going on in the game of baseball. I hope you've peeled back the curtain enough for people to where they will find what you do incredibly useful, as so many baseball people do. And hopefully down the road, we can maybe catch up again and actually talk about putting the projections into use for what's being done on the field. But thanks again for telling your story and letting us know a little bit about what goes into your day-to-day -day life. I really appreciated it. Thanks for having me, John. We'll close out the show with America's fastest growing sports segment called Good Try, Good Effort. Here we'll briefly mention some of the instances from throughout the week when a team or player or coach meant well but didn't quite meet those expectations. First up, and all we really need for this week, good try, good effort, NBA officials. The Memphis Grizzlies lost game two to the San Antonio Spurs 96-82 and head coach David Fisdale was less than pleased for how his team was treated by the Zebras. 
Kawhi Leonard attempted more free throws than the entire Grizzlies team, and David Fisdale let the media know about his displeasure after the game. Sure, he was fined 30 grand by the league, but it was money well spent for us for one of the greatest rants of the year, which you'll get to hear now. Oh, it was huge. It was huge. It just got our confidence back. We needed to see that we could still uh, compete with this team at a high level. Um, you know, it's unfortunate that I got a guy like Mike Conley who in his whole career has got zero technical fouls and just cannot seem to get the proper respect from the officials um, that he deserves. Uh, it was a very poorly officiated basketball game. Um, Zach Randolph, the most rugged guy in the game, had zero free throws, but somehow Kawhi Leonard had 19 free throws. First half, we shot 19 points, shot 19 shots in the paint, and we had six free throws. They shot 11 times in the paint, and they had 23 free throws. I'm not a numbers guy, but that doesn't seem to add up. Overall, 35 times we shot the ball in the paint. We had 15 free throws for the game. They shot 18 times in the paint and had 32 free throws. Kawhi shot more free throws than our whole team. Explain it to me. We don't get the respect that these guys deserve because Mike Conley doesn't go crazy. He has class, and he just plays the game. But I'm not going to let them treat us that way. You know, I know Pop's got pedigree, and I'm a young rookie, but they're not going to rook us. That's unacceptable. That was unprofessional. My guys dug in that game and earned the right to be in that game, and they did not even give us a chance. Take that for data. That's going to do it for The Bridge. You can listen to this show and all previous shows over on my website at londonbridge.com. That's L-U-N-D-I-N-B-R-I-D-G-E. You can also follow me on Twitter under that same handle, at London Bridge. You can find The Bridge on iTunes by searching for The Bridge Sports Podcast. There you'll find the newest episodes of The Bridge every Friday night. And be sure to subscribe, rate, and review as well. You can also find episodes of The Bridge over on SoundCloud, Google Play, or Stitcher. In the next installment of The Bridge, we'll dive into some more baseball, take a look around the NBA playoffs, dabble in some NHL playoffs, and whatever else I happen to have up my sleeve. On The Bridge, keeping you connected with all things sports.